Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Crazy that Carl talked about that. You'd almost think that maybe the same spirit's in him that's in me. Uh, but, but something he said before I get into the message um, that I think is important to understand is he said, you know, sometimes when you, when you declare something, when you speak something, or when you first even receive something, um, that there will be a test that comes. You know, and so he said, you know, they, the test came and they withstood it, and then the rain came, and then it really looked like, man, did we miss it. Sometimes there's a test after the test. Sometimes you pass the test and another test comes. And even though you pass the test, what that le- secondary test, the, the, the whole point and the reason for it is to try to get you to say, that didn't work, so that the next time you face something like that, you don't do what you did the time before. So you could say, well, I thought that maybe I was supposed to do this, but I guess because it didn't end the way I thought that it should, like if I pass this test, then it should end well. It should end good. And in the moment, it may not look like it is, but if you just stay, and that's why Paul said, having done all to stand, stand. Like you already stood once in the face of the test. Now keep standing. Don't be moved from that place. Don't be moved from it. Um, So anyways, uh, I wanted to talk today about just seeking Him and what that looks like practically. You know, how many of you guys have ever heard someone say, you know, talk about the secret place or intimacy or any of that kind of stuff, right? That gets, that gets talked about a lot in, in, in Christianity, and, and rightly so. It's super important. It's one of the most, I believe, most important things that we can do is to actually seek Him. He said, then you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He didn't say, then you'll find me when you seek me here and there, when you casually come after me, when you, when you think about me here and there, when you put a fish sticker on the back of your car, not that there's anything wrong with those things, but that's not what he said. He said, then you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. He said, if you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it will be opened. If you ask, it will be given. All these things are on our end. You know, sometimes I think that um, because the message of grace has been preached so much and because there was so much legalism and striving and people feel like they had to earn God's love and so the message of no striving has gone forward and, and it's awesome, but we have to understand that that's not talking about the entire Christian life. That there's plenty on our end that He asks of us. That, that, that it, it says if you seek, you'll find. Not if you're born again, you'll find. You can be born again and not pursue Him and not find the things. And, and it doesn't have anything to do with God playing favorites. It doesn't have anything to do with Him being a respecter of persons. We know the Bible says that He's not a respecter of persons, meaning that there's no favorites with God. It just means that everybody has equal opportunity, that everybody has equal access. But it's the ones who seek. It's the ones who knock. It's the ones who ask. Those are the ones that have it open, that, have, that find, that have it given. There's a lot on our end. that the, Our relationship with Him depends a lot on us. Amen. There's a lot that we can do. The, your being saved has nothing to do with your good works. It is a faith, a gift, grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Everybody needs to understand that. I'm not talking about being born again, and I'm not talking about the way that you became a new creation in Christ. But now that you're a new creation in Christ, there's a lot that is asked of us. If you look through the Bible, Paul actually says the very words, strive for the faith. You know, and we sing, there is no striving. You know, there is in your love. I can't do anything to make him love me more, but I surely can do a lot to discover more of how much he loves me. 
And when I discover how much He loves me, it changes who I am and I grow in my relationship of Him, my knowledge of Him, and I become more and more like Him as I pursue Him and I go after Him. So don't buy into the fact that like, well, you know, I don't have to do anything. Well, you don't have to do anything. But if you can know Him, why wouldn't you want to do something? Think about it. Like, if He really is the pearl of great price that when a man finds it, he sells everything to buy the field. Why, why would you sit back and say, well, I don't have to do anything to be a Christian. That, that, that's, that's like, I don't even get that. I don't understand that. Where does that mentality come from? Like, you're in love. What if someone said, I don't have to do anything to be a husband? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I could wake up in the morning and ignore the fact that I have a wife and I would still be her husband, but why would I want to do that? Would you question maybe are you really in love if there was no desire to pursue her now that she's my wife? Don't let your relationship with Him end at the wedding. Don't, don't come to the altar and have a covenant ceremony and have the relationship end there. That's the beginning. That's the first step in this amazing thing called walking after Him, being born again, being a Christian. It's the very first step. You come to the altar and there's a covenant and there's an exchange. But if me and my wife came to the altar and there was a covenant exchange between the two of us and then I said, okay, good, we're married now. And then I went off and pursued everything but her for the rest of my life. And, and if someone came to me and said, hey, um, I just want to really encourage you. You know that... that there's things you can do to grow the relationship that you have, to discover depths of love that, with your wife. And I looked at them and said, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do anything to be a husband. It wouldn't even make sense. So why on earth would we allow that mentality to slip into the way we think about our relationship with Him? When did, when did being a Christian ever digress to the least we can do and still believe that we're born again, that we're saved? Well, that's... that's, that's <laughs> That's so far from the thinking of someone who's in love. When you're in love, it's like, what can I do for them? How much more can I know them? How much more can I discover about them? How much more can I lay down my life for them? How much more of them can I have? I want all of them. I don't just want some of them. I don't just want her to take my name and put a ring on her finger and everybody to know that she's my wife. I want every bit of her. I want all of her. I want to discover and know her in a way. And every day I want to know her more and I want to love her more and I want to grow in that. And So you can if you want. You can sit back and you can just say, well, there's nothing I have to do. Well, if you want to stay where you are, you're correct. But if the goal of life is to become more like Him, if the goal of life is to know Him, if we're going to spend eternity discovering who He is, it says that for eternity we'll search the depths of Him. What makes you think you're going to want to do it there if you don't want to do it here? And if that's going to be the desire of your heart for eternity when you're with Him, then maybe if that's not the desire of your heart now when you're with Him, maybe there's something that we need to get before the Father and say, God, I don't have that hunger in me to know You, to discover You, to search You out, to seek You out. 
And I don't just want to put that off as, well, when I get to heaven, then my heart will change. I want to believe that you've changed my heart now. I want to believe that you said in your word that you would take the heart of stone from me and give me a heart of flesh, and you'll write my law upon my heart, and my heart would be to know you. You said that, God. And so right now, just being honest, my heart really isn't to know you. It's to know that one day I'll know you. That wasn't in the notes. That was free. Someone needed to hear that this morning. Okay, now you get what you tithed for. Um, Okay, it's okay to laugh. I promise. The fact that we have a sense of humor is because we're created in the image of a God who must. Right? Because you didn't lose your sense of humor when you became born again. When all things that were not supposed to be yours passed away and everything became new, if you can still laugh after you were born again, that means you were supposed to have it from the beginning. All right. So I was thinking about this, and I really felt like God was saying to me that at the beginning of 2017, the thing that He really wanted to, to declare to us and speak to us about was the pursuit of Him and the secret place and, and what that looks like, intimacy, all these different words that get thrown around, but sometimes we just don't have a practical language to put to what does that look like? And so I, I, I sat down and I, I thought, well, God, I don't want to be presumptive, but I feel like I have a, 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 a deep relationship with you, and I know you. And, and that's, that's not to put me on a pedestal, you know, there's a lot of people in here who have a deep relationship with God and know Him. And I said, so, so God, I'm just going to kind of go through what does it look like for me? And then I'm going to see what that lines up with what the Word says. And then I'm just going to encourage everybody not to do exactly what I do, but that, there's, there, that, that God's not a respecter of persons. There wasn't something that came upon me when I became a pastor. It was like, all right, now you're going to really want to know me and pursue me and seek me. In fact, maybe the fact that I was pursuing Him and knowing Him and seeking Him had something to do with the fact that He put me in the position He put me into, not the other way around. So you don't ever think that people have something that you don't and that you can't. They may have something you don't, but it's not something that you can't. I promise. Me and Dylan agree. All right. So, um, so I started thinking about just spending time with him. And I thought, you know, something that, that happened really early on... Um, especially when I started pastoring especially, was I felt that <clears throat> I had this, this desire in me, but I also had this obligation that I had to try to be everything to everyone. <clears throat> Just being honest. I know some of you guys have never experienced that probably, but, but I had this, this deep desire that, that if something needed to be done, something had to be done, and it had to be done by me, and it had to be done by me right now. And so I, I started to discover after a while of pastoring that the... I actually didn't have a whole lot of time to spend with him because I had so much time spending with his people. And it sounded noble and it sounded good and it looked good and it looked noble and it felt good. See, that's the danger of when you're doing things to serve him is that you can serve him at the expense of knowing him and it feels good because you're actually doing things that are good and you're seeing people's lives change and they're telling you how much you're changing their life. Not you, but the message of grace, the message of the gospel that you carry, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
But they tell you, like, man, I'm so thankful for you. Thank you for this. And, and pretty soon you start thinking, man, this is really what I was created for. But the problem is, is that like the son who left the father's house, the money that he left with, what he left the father's house with didn't run, run out right away. He went out into the world, and eventually over time he spent everything, and he came to the end of himself. Why? Because he wasn't in the Father's house anymore, so he was now operating out of himself, and pretty soon you come to the end of yourself. Depending how much you took with you determines how long it takes, but eventually, if you're not being refilled, if you're not being replenished by the Father, by time in His presence, in His house, in His courts, eventually you'll come to the end of yourself. And I started to realize, I don't want to come to the end of myself. I did that one time when I got born again. I emptied myself of me and He filled me. And I let Him create me a new creation. I don't want to come to that place again. I don't want to be like the son who wakes up one day in a pig slop wishing I could eat what the pigs are eating going it was better in my father's house because I've run out of what I left there with. So I went running back. And I'm like, God, I, 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 have, to, I have to spend time with you. And I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, you know, you actually have to schedule that. He said, you're going to have to actually schedule that because if you don't put that on your schedule and you don't treat that as something that's valuable and important, people will constantly have reasons for you to spend that time doing other things. And I realized I don't have to feel guilty about saying no to something because I have time planned to spend with Him. And that was so freeing. I started saying no. I've said no more in the past two years than I probably said in the first five years of pastoring combined. No, I can't. Sorry. And, 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 and what I do is I schedule it. Uh, what am I saying? I'm saying, God, I'm setting this time aside to be with you. Now, can I be with him all day, during the day, every day? Absolutely. Can I run to him in my time of need? Absolutely. But if the only time my kids came to me is when they needed something, I would start to wonder if they wanted me or they wanted the things that I could do for them. Just being honest, I love when my kids come to me for something because it means they see me as a father that loves them and wants to provide for them and protect them and do all, you know, when, when my son says, Dad, <laughs> this morning, he came running out of the shower. He's afraid of bugs. <laughs> and he came running out of the shower naked. <laughs> and he said, there's a bug in the shower. Kill it. <laughs> and I said, Jackson, you're 11. Man up, bro. Kill that thing. He's like, I'm afraid of bugs. <laughs> So I went in, I pulled the shower curtain aside, we couldn't find the big bag bug, I was leaving, I heard, ah, there it is! <laughs> and he found it, so I killed it, and he said, thanks dad. And he really meant it, like his little heart was settled. And I love that he sees me as a father that he can run to when something makes him afraid. And that he sees me as someone who will protect him. And the Heavenly Father loves that when we do that. But you know what I like even more than that? When I'm sitting on the couch... And he just comes and sits right next to me. And snuggles up so close that if I'm hot, I have to tell him, dude, you got to back up a little bit. <laughs> but he gets up so close, like in the morning when he first wakes up and I'm out there. And a lot of times I'm reading on the couch in the morning. And he has his little stinky morning breath. And he comes and sits right next to me and puts his arm around me. And I said, hey, bud, what's going on? Nothing. I love you. Oh, man, that makes my heart just go. Right? That's the good stuff. And I, I, I honestly believe that with our Heavenly Father, it's like that where when He sees us coming into His presence and He looks at us and says, hey, what's up? Nothing. I love you. 
I really think that just makes his heart just explode. Because I'm not coming to him for something that he can do. I'm coming to him because I want him. Sure, I want him to do things. He's already promised to provide all of my needs. He's already promised all of these things. And there's things that I want and dreams that I have and things that I pray. And I go to him with those things. But, and throughout the day, but I was, I, I, I was thinking about it. I'm like, but, but sometimes Jesus, who obviously was constantly in perfect communion with the Father, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say these words that I speak are not my own. They're the Father's. In other words, I'm saying the things that God's telling me to say. So he obviously always was in communion with him, but yet it marks over and over again. And Jesus, while they slept, went off to be alone. And Jesus rose as early in the morning as was His custom and went off to be alone and pray. Jesus valued the constant communication and the constant communion with the Father. And there's no replacement for that, but He also valued the secret place of getting off and being alone with the Father. And saying, I'm going to make a place and a time to just be with you. And I'm going to guard that and I'm going to value it. And so one thing I just want to really encourage you guys with, it's not religious... It's not legalistic to say, I'm going to actually schedule time to meet with Him. I'm going to make a place in my time to meet with You. God, I, I'm, I, I can tell You right now, God, tomorrow morning at 5.40, I'm going to meet You. I'm coming just to be with You. I have no agenda other than to spend time with You and get to know You more. I want to give You my time. And I schedule it. You know, we make ta- time for what we value. You can tell me that you value me, right? People say that, oh, you, I value you. And, and I believe they mean it. But the things you really value, you'll make time for. It's just the truth. And the most valuable thing that we have is our time. It's the most precious commodity there is. Think about it. Your time is the most valuable, precious thing that you have. And when you give that to Him, I believe it's like the woman with the alabaster jar who took the best thing that she had, the most expensive, the most precious thing that she had, and she broke it and put it on His feet and said, I'm giving you the thing that's most precious to me. And I believe in the same way when we say to Him, God, You've given me this time. Now I'm taking some of this time, the most precious thing that I have, and I'm giving it to You, God. I think he honors that. I think he likes that. I think it's 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 actually worship. It is. So sometimes the idea of knowing him, the idea of being with him, the idea of pursuing him, the idea of intimacy sounds good. And if you asked us we would say that. But if you look at the way that we spend our time, it might say something different. This is what Jesus said about the Pharisees. He was talking to the Pharisees and He said in, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, He said, These people draw near to Me with their mouth and honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. What was He saying? They say all the right things. And if you just listen to what they say, you would think that they have a heart to know Me but their heart is actually far from Me. In other words, what they say doesn't match what they do. It's the very, ex- uh, the very definition of being a hypocrite. It's when what I say doesn't match what I do. 
He said, the Pharisees, listen, they say this stuff, but their hearts are actually far from me. With their lips, they praise me. They draw near to me with their mouth. In other words, if it was just saying it, the Pharisees were so near to him because they draw near to me with their mouth. In other words, what they say sounds like they're drawing near to me. But while man's looking at the outside, God's looking at the heart. Remember he told Samuel, I, even I, am he who searches the heart. When man looks at the outside, I, Samuel, I look at the heart. And Jesus said, listen, from the outside, it sounds great. But on the inside, in their heart, they haven't drawn near to me. They're actually far from me. Because the idea of intimacy sometimes is a whole lot easier than the truth of it. The truth of it actually takes effort. The truth of it takes effort. It takes striving for it. It takes valuing it. It takes fighting for it. It takes guarding it. I value that time, so I guard that time. We guard the things that we value. You don't look out on your lawn and say, oh shoot, you better go out there and grab those leaves and bring them in. Someone might steal them. Why? You don't value them. So you're not going to guard them. But if you look outside and see one of your kid's bikes sitting on the front yard, you think, I better bring that bike in. Why? It has value to you, so you want to guard it. Anything you value, you'll guard. If you value time with him, you'll guard it. And so as I began to to guard that time and, and set the appointment there was a second thing that I realized was it's kind of nice to have a place. Well, not, that you, not that you have to, but there's something really awesome about having a place that I go and I meet with Him. And, and like I said, you can meet with Him in your car while you're driving. You can be with Him anytime. But there's something that's to me that's just precious about saying, I have two places in my house where I go and I meet with him and I expect to hear him there and I expect to meet him there because I've built a history of being with him. And so the more I'm with him there, the more I meet him there, the more I place an expectancy when I'm there, the more I meet with him. And it's this continuing cycle where it's like, I just expect when I put this time aside, God, and I come expecting and I come into that place when I go, not there's something magic about the place, but it's the history. It's every time I go in there and I smell that same smell. One of them is my sauna. When I go in there and I smell cedar, and, and, I, and, I, and, and I get alone in there, and I feel that heat, I'm like, oh, we're going to meet. <laughs> we're going to meet. I can't tell you how many times I've come running upstairs after being in the sauna, telling Patty something that he spoke to me while I was in there. As I was preparing for this message, listen to how cool that God is. I was preparing for this message, and when I say that, I mean I was sitting being with him, and I just was pouring over things in my heart, getting kind of them straightened out of my head before I put them on paper to have notes that I probably won't look at very often, but it's my process, and it's what I do. But he said to me, he said, if, if you encourage people to meet with me, I'll meet with them, and I'll give them revelation. And I don't want you preaching something as an idea. Even though you have all these stories, I want you to have a fresh story, Roy. So here's something I'm going to do for you in this moment. You know that thing you've been asking me about for four years? Here's the answer. Blew my mind. It's going to be next week's message. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> you just have to come back. 
and it won't be on podcast either. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It will be, but, but no, it, it was like he was saying, I, I, I never want to ask you, I, I don't want to use you, Roy. I don't, I don't want to just use you. I want relationship with you. And if you're going to get up and speak about that, I want to actually do what I'm promising that I'm going to do for everyone for you. Because I don't want you up there telling them about something that's a theory, even though, like I said, I, there's so many times where he's met me there, I could, I, could, I could stand here convinced of it, but it was like he wanted it just to be fresh in my mind and he wanted to just reinforce it once again, that if you will actually draw near to me, I'll draw near to you. I realize, listen, I realize that, that his manifest presence is everywhere, right? Where could I go that I would hide from your presence? David said it in the old covenant. You know, the, the knowledge, the glory of God fills the earth and all that stuff. But there's something about his actual tangible presence. There's something about that nearness that comes near you. You know, it talks about, it talks about um, uh, uh, Jonah. It says, and he went and hid himself and departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, if, if he's talking about the manifest presence of God that's everywhere that you can't escape from, then there's no way that you can hide from it and depart from it. But if he's talking about the actual presence, the voice that was speaking to him, God's presence came to Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it for his sins have come up before me. The presence of God, the tangible presence of the Lord came to Jonah and Jonah's disobedience caused him to make a decision that he departed from the presence of God. Now, was God's omnipresence still with him in the boat? Did God know where he was, see what he was doing? Absolutely. But then God came to him again. So we have to understand that, that yes, he's always with us. He's never, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. But I'm talking about that actual presence that comes and begins to speak and minister to you. And you, you know what? Sometimes like, like when you're worshiping a lot of times, you, just, you, you become so aware of him that his presence becomes just this tangible thing. And it's not like he comes and goes in percentages. I'm not even sure how all that works. But there's something about when you say, God, I'm here for nothing else but you that I think just attracts him because he said if you hunger, you'll be fed. When he sees hunger, he has to feed because he's a man, not a man that he should lie. So if he said the hungry will be fed, when you come to him hungrily, when you come to him expectant, he can't help himself. He just comes. So this place, my wife has her place. It's at the, on the bench. I want to put the bench at our kitchen table on this side so that it's visible from the door and the metal chairs are on the other side. And I told her that the other day and I said, uh, we should swap it up. I think the bench would look better on that side. She said, yeah, but that's my place. That's my spot. And, and, and there's times literally where I will leave in the morning. I'll have two morning appointments. I'll come home and it will be four and a half hours later and she'll still be sitting at that place and her journal's out and her Bible's out and a book she's reading out and there's tears making the paper wavy as she sits there and she's journaling and writing as she's meeting with God in that place. And it's been like that for so many years that there's this expectation that comes upon her when she gets alone there and she seeks Him and puts herself, sets aside time and says, God, I'm here for You that she just expects that He's going to come and He does every time. That's not just for pastors and their wives. It's not just for Carl at a lake house. It's not just for Brandon when he sits with his guitar in his room. It's for every single believer. Every child has equal access to their father. But not every child makes equal 
value and equal time and equal effort to seek and to find what's available to all. And so a, a place is, is really cool. I know um, Tom has a spot that he's talked to me about where he likes to sit. Uh, it's just, it seems like when you talk to people that have been pursuing him for a long time, a lot of these people, they'll tell you, I have this place. And like I said, it's, it's not that the place is magic, but you just build this history. There's just this expectation. You get there and you're like, oh, I'm here. And here he comes. The other, next thing I realized was, I, I, come expectant. Come expectantly. Expectancy is a form of faith. Think about it, right? Because it means that I believe something's going to happen. I have an expectation. I'm not just going downstairs and going, well, God, it'd be really cool if you came, but I understand if you don't. You know, because you're God and you're on your own schedule. And so, no worries. Hey, I'm here if you feel like it. That's not the way that I approach Him. The way I approach Him is, God, I'm coming to meet with you. You said if I draw near, you'll draw near. And so I'm coming fully expecting that like you have so many other times, you're going to meet me here. And I think that expectation, because it's just a form of faith, it's saying, God, we haven't even met yet, but I'm thankful because I know you. I know who you are. I know your promises. And I know that you said you would come. So I'm coming expectant. And every time I come expectant, I find Him and I meet with Him and He shows up and He just he speaks to me or He gives me this peace, this, this joy fills me and I just know He's there. And, and so it builds an expectation for the next time. And it's this big cycle where every time I come expectant, you know, there, this is biblical. Everything I'm going to teach you today, I, there's a Scripture for it. Right In Mark 5, chapter 5, verse 27, he's talking about the woman with the issue of blood. He says, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. What did she do? She placed an expectation. When I go and I find that Jesus and I touch his clothes, I will be made well. You realize there is no biblical scripture that says, if you touch his clothing, you'll be made well. You realize when Jesus said, who touched me? They said, what do you mean, who touched you? We're in a crowded place. We're in a crowded market. There's people everywhere. How can you ask us who touched you? What's he saying? He's saying, you can't, the disciples are saying, you can't say, who touched me? Everyone's touched you. You've just walked through 500 people. There's people rubbing up against each other. The market was so crowded that they had to turn side this way and that way to make their way through. They had to weave through people. You've touched hundreds of people, Jesus. How can you ask us who touched you? He said, no, 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 because I felt power. I felt virtue go out of me when somebody touched me. And the woman says, it was me. And instantly, she was healed. Why didn't the other people that were there Get the healing, the deliverance, the freedom, the peace, whatever it was that they needed when they rubbed up against Jesus. Because the person who came with expectation made a draw on God. And when she grabbed a hold of his garment by faith with expectancy, he couldn't help. He didn't even say anything. You realize it wasn't like Jesus made a conscious decision to heal her or he would have known who touched him. And that's better than three people shaking their head. Now, it's too late. You blew your chance. Just be on your toes for the next one. He would have known who touched him had it been a conscious decision that he made. There's something that he can't help 
himself when there's an expectancy and somebody says, I expect this to happen. I'm going to make the time. Listen, it was a lot of trouble. You know, this was long before the age of, of transportation and technology and, and what we, you know, right now, if you want to know where the Sada food truck's going to be, you can go on their Twitter page and they put out locations and what times they're going to be there and you can meet them. Jesus didn't have that. If you wanted to know where Jesus was, you had to go and find Him. You had to seek Him. You had to put effort into it. She didn't say, well, if God wants me to be healed, I'll just, He'll come and heal me. She didn't say, if he wants to meet with me, he'll come find me. He's God. He knows where I am. Come on, it's a good thing that that Christians nowadays don't have any of those attitudes. But you can imagine back then, people might have had some of those attitudes. No, she said. She said. Listen to what it says. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said... If I may only touch his clothes, I shall be made well. She put an expectation. Listen, put an expectation on him. God, I'm putting this time aside to meet with you. And I'm just believing that you're going to meet with me, God. That I'm going to know you more. That you're going to come and speak to me. God, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm coming with an expectation. I'm putting aside this time and this place just to be with you. And I fully expect... Listen, there was nothing... Like I said, there, there, it wasn't like she was quoting a Scripture verse that said, touch His cloak and you'll be made whole from your issue of blood. It was just that she heard about Him. So she heard about Jesus and she said... All the people who brushed up against Him touched Him just like she did but power didn't leave him because there was no expectation, there was no faith, and there was no effort put in by those people. You can casually brush up against God in church and around other people and, and, and you know, reading a bumper sticker and, and all those kind of things. You can casually brush up against God all that you want, but the time that, he's actually, that power comes out of him, the time that lives are changed is when it's someone saying, no, I'm going to make an effort to grab a hold of him. I'm going to make an effort to meet with Him. I value Him more than I value anything else. And this moment, right now, there's nothing more that I want than Him. He can't help Himself. He can't. And I thought about... I always enter thankfully. I'm always thankful. I'm thankful that I could go and meet with the God of the universe. I'm thankful that He's washed me and cleansed my heart of an evil conscience. That His Son became sin that knew no sin. That I might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I can boldly enter into His throne room. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I can set aside time and that I can believe that He's not a man that He should lie. That He'll actually honor His Word and that He'll come and draw near to me. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for what He's done in my life. Thankfulness is is a cure for so many things. And the Word even says, it says in uh, in Psalm 95 too, it says, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. So it's biblical. I don't want to come to Him with a bunch of complaints and then try to work myself into a place of being thankful. I want to come to Him fully aware of who He is and what He's done in my life. 
I don't want to have to spend time working through all of that stuff. I want to just start right there. Enter into his course with thanksgiving. You know, thankfulness can drive away negativity. I, I promise you, listen to me. Here's something practical you can do. The very next time you start to feel a negative attitude come upon you, start thanking him. Start with God. I thank you that you sent your son, that you thought my life was worth the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. That you looked at my life, not because of anything great that I did. Titus says, not because of our own good works. Not because we were so perfect. Not because of our own righteousness. But God sent His Son before we did anything right. You looked at my life. You saw me where I was and you said, your life is worth the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. And you spent His blood to buy back my life. God, thank You for that. I promise you, whatever the thing is that you were negative about will start to pale in comparison. And then it's, God, thank you that you've made me your son. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of God and such we are. Start quoting Scripture that declares who you are to Him. God, thank you that that you gave me the ability to call myself your son. Not because I decided, wow, you're a good father. I'd like to be a son. But because you're a good father and looked down and said, I'd like for you to be my son. It wasn't my idea. Me accepting him is no big deal. That's a, that's a no-brainer. Are you kidding me? He took all of that and he gave me, he took all of my sin, the ugly, nasty junk that, 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 that was infesting in my life, and he, he took that and in exchange he gave me the righteousness of himself through his son Jesus Christ. Oh, that's a no-brainer. I don't even have to think about that. But that He took me and accepted me. Mm, There's some thanksgiving there. There's some thankfulness. Pretty soon, the negativity that you were feeling, the attitude that was trying to come upon you, I promise you, thankfulness will drive it so far from you. God, I thank You for everything You've done in my life. God, if You never did another thing, I would be eternally grateful, but I have a whole lifetime of your promises ahead of me. And so God, I'm so thankful for everything that you've promised. God, I thank you for who you've called me to be. God, I thank you from where you took me from and where you've placed me. And I thank you, God, that you're not done. That I'm being transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit, your spirit, the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of me. And that the power of Jesus actually lives in me. And it's the hope of glory to the world. That you want to not only just save me, but now you want to actually use me to represent you to a world that doesn't know you. And you want to make me look so much like you that your son said that if the world hates me, it's because they hated him first. How can I even be negative if someone hates me? Jesus said, listen, when you're following me and you look like me, there's going to be people in the world that will hate you because they hate me. So I just choose that that's the reason they don't like me. Even if it's not, I win. Think about it. If someone doesn't like me and I choose to take the attitude, it's because I look like Jesus. Now, if I've sinned and done something to offend them, I can't sit there and be like, it's because I look like Jesus. That's prideful idiocy. Don't do that. That's why Timothy, I mean, Paul, when he, I mean, Peter, when he's writing, <laughs> Paul, Timothy, Peter, whatever, one of them, right? It was the Holy Spirit, no matter the vessel, but it was, it was actually Peter. And he said, and when you're persecuted, make sure that none of you is persecuted because of sin. 
Why? He's saying, listen, you can't sit there and and go, praise God that I've been found worthy to be persecuted when it's actually suffering for the sin that you've committed. That's New Testament. It's New Covenant. It's Peter writing to people who he said have attained a faith like ours. So these are people who are born again. That's not talking to the world. He's saying to believers, listen, it's possible that some of the things that you're facing are because of the sins that you're committing. Make sure that you're not committing sin. If you are, repent. But if you're not, rejoice. Because you look enough like your brother that someone that hates your brother now hates you. That's amazing. You can choose that attitude. You can just choose that for the people. They may not even know it, God, but they really don't like me because they don't like you. It's the Spirit that's in me that they can't stand. Because we battle not against flesh and blood. So why would I make it about flesh and blood? It's not about me. If I'm walking after the Spirit, it's because of the Spirit of God that's in me. So thank you, God, that there's enough of your Holy Spirit in me and that enough of your Spirit in me is coming out that people that don't know you don't like me. Come on, you can choose that every time. And now all of a sudden when you're persecuted, you can actually turn into something to rejoice about. It's like... All of a sudden, why is it a bad thing that nobody likes me? Jesus, if, if he's to believe, listen, now if nobody likes you, you've got a problem, right? Okay, it's you. I'm just going to give you that example right now. If nobody likes you, it's you. But if nobody dislikes you, it's you. Because Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Not woe to you when someone speaks ill of you. He never said that. It's in your Bible. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. What's he saying? The only way that everybody likes you is if you tell everybody what they want to hear. So when somebody talks bad about you and you're just following Jesus and you've done nothing to harm them, you can actually rejoice in that and you can say, thank you, Jesus, that you told me that it's okay. That actually, if you're to be believed, I should have more to worry about when everybody loves me If nobody speaks ill of me, I might be telling everybody what they want to hear. That's kind of sobering. Now, I'm not saying go out and try to make enemies so you can be like, see, I'm just like Jesus. I'm saying that if if the gospel is how you live your life, it's going to be confrontational to the kingdom of darkness, and you live in the kingdom of darkness. There should be times where the kingdoms clash and where people that don't know him don't like you, but it's because they really don't want him. So I'm thankful. I can always, even in the lowest of times, I can find something to be thankful for. And I never want to come into His presence without honoring Him with a gift of thankfulness. And it's biblical, so there's that too. The fourth thing I thought about is how often I enter His presence with worship. Listen, God loves singing. You realize you're commanded to sing more than almost anything else in the Bible? Over and over and over and over again. You realize that there's more times when God was going to fight a war that he had people sing first? Now, now, I'm not talking about worshiping worship. Because you can go the other way with that. I'm talking about getting before him and actually worshiping him. It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. He thinks you can when it says make a joyful noise to the Lord, that means that your noise is joyful to Him. 
It has to be. It may not be joyful to everybody else, which is why you should find a place to do it alone. Some of you guys. <laughs> Carl? <laughs> he coughed, so I called him. No, but listen, it doesn't matter if you think that you can sing. This isn't for you. When did this become about you? Well, uh, yeah, but I'm just not really a worshiper. Become one. Become one. Because what is worship? It's me opening my mouth and expressing and declaring who He is, what I'm thankful for, who He's called me to be. It's, it's singing to Him. It's actually the joy that's in my heart, the joy of my salvation coming out of my mouth. It's an overflow of my heart. If there's no worship in my heart and there's no worship in my mouth, I should be really, really concerned. Seriously. I mean, that's not to condemn anybody. That's to encourage us that there's a place where your heart can be full of worship because if what He wants to come from your mouth is a joyful noise, and Jesus said that what's in your heart comes out of your mouth, then if He's asked you to make a joyful noise, that means He's asked you to have a joyful heart. And if He's asked you to do something, then He's always graced you for the same. So there's a way that you can have a joyful heart no matter what you're going through because He didn't say make a joyful noise unto the Lord unless you're going through a hard time and your heart's full of everything but joy. Because they're blowing it today. I'm telling you, there's so many good points in here. Yeah. <laughs> We're taking notes. All right. And then, once I've worshiped and once I've thanked him, and once there's an expectancy and I'm in that place and I've set aside that time the very next thing I do is listen. It's amazing how we say prayer is a conversation with God. Yet, if you listen to most of our prayer lives, we do most of the talking. So I just get quiet before Him. Why? Because I'm here to listen. See, when, when we set aside our time for Him, it shows that we value Him. When we actually are quiet and listen, it shows that we value His voice. And He said, don't cast your pearls before swine. What does that mean? It means don't give something of value to someone who has the abil- doesn't have the ability to value it. And if He's called us to do that, then that means that's the way that He is too. And if we don't listen and sit quietly enough to actually hear what He has to say, why would He give us something of value when we haven't shown that we actually value it? So I just get quiet. God, I I just want to hear you. Now just wait. And sometimes it gets uncomfortable. Don't rush into His presence with words. What's He saying? Don't speak out of your discomfort. Don't feel like you have to say something. Remember when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Right? Jesus takes the three disciples that were closest to him. They go up on the mountain. They fall asleep. They wake up. They see three people. They see Moses. They see Elijah. And they see Jesus. And it says, and Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three altars, one for each of you, because he was afraid. Because he didn't know what to do. He felt like he had to say something. He had to do something. And God speaks and says, This is my son. Listen to him. What was he saying? You're talking and all you should be doing is listening. 
you're wanting to do something, and I never asked you to build altars for anybody. All Jesus said was, let's go up on the mountain. So why now all of a sudden are you feeling like you need to say and do things when you're in the presence of my son? Just be quiet and listen. And the longer and the more you do this, the more often you meet with him, the more you just become comfortable in that. Even if it's silent for a while, it's okay. You have that best friends that you can sit next to each other and you don't have to say anything. It's not awkward. You don't have to try to fill the space with conversation because there's an understanding between the two of you of the, of the love and the friendship. And, and just it's just comfortable. You can just sit with them. If you don't have friends like that, you need some like that. Everybody needs friends that they don't feel like they have to fill the space with conversation. It's enough just to be with them. I don't have to fill every minute with something. I don't have to worry if the conversation stops. It's enough just to be in your presence and just to be with you and know that you want to be with me. And that's the same thing with Him. Just listen. You know how many times it says that God spoke when He realized that someone was listening? Remember Samuel? Samuel, Samuel. Runs, you know, keeps going to Eli. And I says, finally, you know, the third time he says, wait, the next time, it may be the Lord. This is a prophet. Took him three times. He's like, well, maybe it's... <laughs> he knows it's not him and there's nobody else in the temple, but it still takes three times for him to say, maybe it's the Lord. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's because he so highly respected the Lord's voice that he wanted to make sure. And after the third, by the mouths of two or three, let every word be established. I think he was waiting and when he heard it again and again, then he realized, okay, it's, it's you, God. It's not something flippant to throw out. People throw around God spoke like, like a flippant thing. I'm telling you right now, don't ever take lightly that the God of the universe speaks to us. Don't ever think that it's not going to happen, but don't ever take it lightly when it does. It's an amazing thing that the God of the universe actually speaks to us. He does. My sheep hear my voice and know my voice. That means he's speaking. And that means you can know it's him. But don't take it lightly. Don't let it become common. So I think Eli didn't take it lightly. He didn't let it become common. And so finally he's like, okay, this is probably you, God. The next time he does this, say, speak, Lord, for your servants listening. And then God speaks. Why didn't God speak? Because he wanted to make sure that Samuel was ready to hear. If you want God to speak, make sure that he knows you're ready to hear. Set up, set up a place for that. Set up a time for that. Set it apart and say, God, I'm coming to meet with you. I want to hear you. I want to know you. I want to be with you. And the number one way that we can show him that we value what he has to say is by actually quieting ourselves and listening. Usually after that, I do two things. I always thank him. I always get really excited. I always thank him. And then I'll pray. Because I've listened to what he has to say. And I'm now going to tell him what I came for. And you know what the truth of the matter is? There's so many times that by the time I get through all of these steps, the thing that I came into his presence thinking about that I was going to talk to him about has already vanished. There's so many times that that thing that was so huge that I thought I had to run to him about. That thing that I was thinking about when I came into his presence, it's so far gone. Because I've been with him and I've heard his voice and I've thanked him and I've worshipped him and all that stuff took care of the thing that I thought that I was going to say when I got the chance. And a lot of times all I can just say is thank you. Over and over again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the last thing, I'll just close up with this. Next week, 
I'm either going to preach the message that he told me during this prep, or I'm going to talk about the, the, the biggest reasons that I feel like we don't enter into. Well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll get to them. Whatever. If you're done before me, you can leave. Um, the la- but the last thing that I do then is I will, I will open up his word and begin to read his word. And I pull out my phone, she pulls out her journal, whatever it is, and I write down the things that he spoke, the things that I felt, and I, and I make a note of it. Why? Because I don't want to forget it. Because it's important. Because I value it. And because in my notepad on my phone, I have years of times of him speaking little prompts to me. And then I'll open up the Word and I'll start digging into the Word. And, and I'll start chasing that little... Sometimes it's just a little string that he gives you. You know, he just speaks something. Hey, have you ever thought about this and this? That's it sometimes. It's not this... Sometimes it's this, you know, this just life-changing revelation he speaks is sometimes it's just a question sometimes they say why don't you ask me this and then i'll ask and he'll be quiet so i'll find it in his word i'll find somewhere in the word that speaks directly to the thing that he was speaking to me about and I'll start down that trail of revelation of having His Word opened up to me by His Spirit because His voice has spoke and now I'm finding Him in the Word because there's value in both the spoken and the written Word of God. That's why there's not just one word for the Word in the Greek when He talks about the Word of God. There's the spoken Word and there's the written Word. And they're both equally important to us. Also, I want to make sure that what I think I heard is really Him because He'll never say something that contradicts His Word. And when I find that confirmation, I'm like, it was you, and I knew it, but now I know. I just get excited, and then it's like, oh man, I can't wait to share this with somebody. And I usually run upstairs and start talking to Patty. (laughs) A hundred miles an hour. And sometimes what I'm saying to her, she didn't have the experience that I did. And, and she doesn't, I can't process all the things that I'm thinking and the 700 rabbit trails that are going now because of this one thing they spoke. And she looks at me and she goes, cool. And I'm like, that doesn't excite you? And she's like, well, I'm, yeah, it's awesome. It, it's because, it's because there's, there's an experience that comes with him speaking with you that you can't convey to other people. And you know what? A lot of the times it's not for you to convey. It's just between you two. If I shared everything that happened when me and my wife spent time intimately alone, it would be foolish. It would be weird. And it would be disrespectful. And sometimes when we're alone with Him and we have those intimate times with Him, the things that He speaks aren't for anybody but us. And His Spirit will show us which is which. If we ask. There's the two things that I think, and I'm going to real quickly just go through these. The two things that I think keep us from entering into His presence. The two most common things. The first one is busyness. We're pulled in so many directions. These things have made us instantly available to so many people. Listen, I have a tip for you. When you go to spend time with Him, if you're going to use your phone for your Bible and for your notepad, put it on airplane mode. That way there's no th- nothing coming in to distract you, to disrupt you. You can flick it off. I promise you the world will not end while you're down there. And if it does, you won't even care. You'll be with Him. <laughs> but busyness. Actually saying, God, time is the most valuable thing I have and so I'm going to give this to You, God. 
It may cost you something. I promise you, deciding to do this may cost you something. Whatever it is, is a small price to pay. Listen, when the man found the pearl in the field, he sold everything he had. You're not going to have to sell everything that you have, probably. You're probably not going to have to quit everything that you do, but it may cost you something that you do. Whatever it is that he asks you to give up in exchange for time with him is a small price, and it's so worth it. He's so worth it, I promise you. Listen, you control what time you go to bed and what time you wake up. There's a lot of things in life that you don't control. When you're on the job and you're on the, someone else's time and they're paying you, that time belongs to them. It says serve them as if the Lord. And don't, don't go when you're supposed to be working and say, well, I'm going to have my quiet time now. No, that's not what you're getting paid to do unless your boss says that's okay. Be a good employee. But you control what time you go to sleep. You control what time you go to bed. I promise you that last half hour at night probably isn't worth what you spend it on compared to giving him the first half hour in the morning. I just need to challenge our church with that as we head into this new year. That last half hour at night, go to bed 30 minutes earlier, wake up 30 minutes earlier, and just give Him that time that you've gained. Give it to Him. Say, God, I'm going to meet with you there. Even if you can't do it every morning, it's okay. It's not like this has to be in every single day. I'm going to set aside this time and go to this place and worship and do all this stuff. I'm just saying as often as you can. But I promise you, every one of us can make a half hour freed up by going to bed a half hour earlier, waking up a half hour earlier. David talks about it. Early in the morning, my soul seeks you. Early, I will find you. Jesus, early in the morning, went off to be alone and pray. Uh, Do you have to do it to be a Christian? No, but Jesus had to do it to be Jesus. And if He's the goal, then maybe we should do it too. The other thing that I think is the biggest thing that keeps us from entering into His presence is condemnation. It's why we talk so much here about who we are in Christ and our identity. If you're not entering into His presence because you feel like you haven't been good enough the day before, you're basing your worth on your own righteousness, which is filthy rags. You have to understand Jesus didn't act sinful so that you could act righteous. He became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's in your Bible. The only problem is, is if you don't believe that, the lie of the enemy, your own condemnation will keep you from feeling like you're worthy to enter into His presence. Listen, you've never been good enough on your best day to enter into His presence based on what you've done. You've never been bad enough on your worst day to not enter into His presence because the thing that allows you to enter His presence is the blood of Jesus that was shed for you and who He says you are, not who your mind or the enemy or anybody in the world would ever tell you. There is nothing stopping you. It's in your Bible. Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brethren, Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By what? By our good works? By how good we were? No, by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is he saying in this verse? He's saying, listen, there is nothing that can keep you from my presence because the spirit that's in you is the spirit of God. That's always your spirit, soul, and body. That's what we're made of. The spirit of God that's in you is as pure as the day that that he came into you. He cannot be defiled. It's the spirit of God. And what does he say? So he doesn't even address that. He doesn't even say like he made your spirit or anything. Like that. It's just a given. It's an understood that if you're born again and you're entering into his presence, it's because the spirit of God lives on the inside of you. And that's as clean as Jesus. It's never, ever changing. But then he says this, 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled. That's your soul. Sprinkled from an evil conscience. What's he saying? There's nothing from within you that is to condemn you when you've actually had the blood of Jesus sprinkled and made you clean. It says in, in 1 John that He forgives us of all unrighteousness. All. Hebrews talks about this over and over again. If you struggle with this, read the book of Hebrews. It talks about that once for all, He made a sacrifice for our sins. He's not getting back on the cross every time you make a mistake. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The only time He's coming back is to rule with a sword in His mouth. He's not coming back to get on a cross again. Because He made the sacrifice once for all. So our heart has been sprinkled from an even conscience and our bodies, He's telling you, listen, even your very body, the part that comes into contact with the world. Remember when He was talking to Peter and He said, I'm going to wash your feet? And Peter said, wash all of me then, Lord. Not just my feet. He said, Peter, you're already clean because I've cleansed you with the water of my word. But it's your feet that need cleansing. Why? It's your feet, the part that comes into contact with this world, the part that has people say things to it, the part that has enemies' thoughts or sees things or, or, or experiences things, that needs to be cleansed by the water of his word. And so he's saying what? He's saying, I've cleansed even your body with pure water. So your conscience has been, has been forever cleansed by the blood of Jesus and your own physical being has even been cleansed by the water of His Word, understanding that you are in His sight pure, acceptable, and holy. Because that's what the Word, the water, says you are. And when you believe that, the result of it is this. That you can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You understand, I can come into your presence, God. And not only can I come, but listen, God wrote this. You realize all these things, all these verses that talk about drawing near to him, coming into his presence, boldly coming before his throne. A man penned it, but God wrote it. It's the inspired word of God. So what is that saying? That's saying, this is God writing to us and telling us, come boldly into my presence. You can come before me with the full assurance of faith because I've sprinkled you from an evil conscience and I've washed your body with the water. That is good news. And it was His idea, not ours. We didn't write this Bible and ask Him, God, would you sign off on this because we think it's a good idea. No, that was His Word. This is His promise. This is His heart. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that we can come before You boldly because of the blood of Jesus which has made a way. God, that there's that red carpet, the blood of Jesus that we enter into Your presence because of God. That You've made us. God, Your Word says, don't You know that the temple of God is holy and that is what You are. God, that, oh, that we would believe that. That we would believe that nothing can keep us from Your presence but us. God, that we are the only thing that's keeping us from more of You that You've never hid Your face from us again. That You've never left us. You've never forsaken us. That You've never locked the door. That You've always wanted us with You. I just pray, God, that, that You would stir in our hearts a hunger for this. God, that You would stir in us an excitement to say, I can know Him more. I can be with Him more. I can hear His voice. 
God, I pray right now that if anybody struggles with feeling unworthy, that You would assure them that they are unworthy on their own, but they are forever worthy because of Jesus. God, that we would value You, but more than that, that we wouldn't just value You with our mouths, God. That we wouldn't just draw near with our lips, but that we would draw near You with our hearts, God. With our time. With our effort. And I thank You for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.